0: I'm Christy Gupton, and I'm an Employee Benefits Advisor. Welcome to Healthcare Solutions, a podcast where we explore innovations in healthcare, cost containment strategies, and employee well-being. We'll discuss every way possible to turn our healthcare system back into the kind of environment where patient care comes first and costs go down as a result. I invite you to join me to hashtag Let's Fix Healthcare. In today's episode, I'm talking with Mark Pugh, Senior Vice President at Preferred Medical, a workers' comp-focused pharmacy benefits manager. I found Mark on LinkedIn, but last year, we worked together to hold a large forum in North Carolina on what employers needed to be doing to protect themselves and their employees from the ravages of the opioid crisis. Mark is a well-known, nationally recognized speaker blogger, and expert on the intersection of chronic pain and its appropriate treatment. Listen here as we talk about where we are right now as an industry and our quest to solve the opioid crisis. In last week's episode,
1: you know um, especially when you're introducing drugs and usually when you see you know these particular prescription drugs you see them creating side effects, and those side effects sometimes get to the point where they create symptoms, and then those symptoms, rather than dealing with the root cause, um, those symptoms say, well, let's add another drug to address it, so you can't sleep, or mm-hmm. well, rather than addressing the root cause of why you can't sleep, which is probably maybe the over-sedation of opioids during the day, so you're napping throughout the day, and when it comes time to sleep at night, you can't, and you're in pain at night, so you can't, so rather than dealing with the root cause of that,
0: Now for more with Mark Pugh. So, employers have maybe not done the best job being on top of this issue. Maybe they weren't paying attention to the data in their health plan um, or whatever workers comp claims they they could be aware of. They maybe uh, were a little too trusting of their insurance carrier and the PBM that's um, okaying a lot of these prescriptions, and they didn't. Put the effort into education, uh, employee education on the dangers of opioids. So, you know, we end up with a lot of these catastrophic stories um, of employees or dependents who uh, didn't need to, really didn't need to be on these drugs, but ended up on them and the kind of tragic consequences that come out of that. What do employers need to do to get ahead of that game now?
1: Well, playing a little bit from behind to some degree, as you pointed out, uh, but everybody in, in American society, unfortunately, is kind of playing from behind at this point. There were a lot of people that should have paid attention and noticed these red flags but didn't do anything much about them. So I'm seeing a lot of employers now starting to focus on broader fitness issues. Obviously, EAP, employee assistance programs, are not new, uh, but they have been focused on that whole person trying to help people through Divorces or uh, financial issues, different things like that, uh, recognizing that when you come to work, you need to be fully there and a lot of people have heard the term of absenteeism you know people don 't show up and so forth, but presentism presenteism is just as bad that 's where they are there, but they aren 't fully emotionally psychologically invested right. um, and if they have physical issues, they may not necessarily be able to do the full job so I think employers are starting to see. Uh, the value of focusing on the whole person focusing on not just physical health but psychological emotional health etc and so uh, I've seen things like for example the standing desks Mm -hmm. Uh, that wasn't even a thing five years ago in fact if anybody would have Tossed you the idea that you could be walking on a treadmill at three miles an hour while typing on a laptop, most people would have probably laughed you away. But now the concept of adjustable, you know, standing desks, walking meetings, uh, that's a thing. Uh, there are employers that are changing out their vending machines and taking out some of the sodas with all the sodium and the sugar and all that kind of stuff or the ingredients that you can't pronounce. Right. Um, there's a reason why the, the zero-sugar uh, versions of sodas uh, don't have zero calories because they got a bunch of stuff in there that you probably shouldn't mm-hmm. be putting in your body anyway. Right. So they're changing vending machines and putting vitamin water or, or water, different things like that, um, swapping out the candy bars for you know uh, trail mix and things that are better for them. I've heard of employers that are bringing nutritionists in and doing like a lunch and learn and helping them know how to better cook at home with less sodium and less sugar, uh, focusing on vegetables and fruit. Uh, so they're they're talking and thinking about um, the bigger uh, issue, which is better health um, in general. Uh, and I think, you know, from workers' compensation standpoint, that has repercussions because you're going to have a shorter duration of disability, and probably faster return to work if that person is physically, emotionally, psychologically, psychologically fit before the injury occurs, and so they understand the repercussions of helping that person be to their full, po- full potential, uh, both you know physically, psychologically, emotionally, that uh, everything associated with that, that whole person. They're understanding that. So how does that translate to education on opioids? Well, if you're more focused on deep diaphragmic breathing in stressful situations as opposed to reaching for that magic pill, then chances are when a doctor offers you that magic pill, you don't go down that path because you understand that you can manage that pain that way. Right. If you're an adherent to yoga and you start every morning, let's say you've got back issues, you know, um, tight hammies, whatever it is, And you have figured out over time that the best way to get your morning started is to do some stretching exercises, whether that be yoga or just stretching, whatever. And you've got that kind of in your mindset. Well, that's how you approach life. That's how you approach getting ready for life. So when a doctor gives you a pill, chances are you're going to go, no, I got it. Thanks. Because the, the 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 biggest problem I think we have in our society at this juncture, and it all f- filled into what happened in the mid-1990s when we were fed this line about you know this magic pill, et cetera, um, is this concept that we shouldn't feel any pain, that there should be an eradication of pain. If you're in pain, we should get rid of all that pain. Um, and there are some pains, certainly, that are momentary, temporary, that aren't there forever. But when you're talking about chronic pain, which is that's where my content sits, right? I I talk about I'm sitting at the intersection of chronic pain and appropriate treatment. Mm -hmm. So acute pain sometimes transitions to chronic pain. Sometimes it just goes away. But, you know, we get this unrealistic expectation that we should not feel any pain. And you and I know, as parents, as adults, we know that pain is part of the human condition. What happens, how you handle that pain, uh, often translates into what the repercussions of that pain. So I'm a firm believer that suffering isn't a an absolute uh, outcome from pain. Suffering is how you address pain. I've heard a number of psychologists talk in terms that pain is in the brain. Not that you make it up, but how you process pain determines whether you can handle it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a number of people I know that are in significant pain and they don't take any drugs at all. They do deep diaphragmatic breathing, they walk, they exercise, they eat anti inflammatory foods, they're very cognizant of what they put into their body, uh, supplementation, you know, all this kind of stuff. They understand that, and that's how they manage their pain. Mm-hmm. The pain doesn't go away, it's just that they have made a decision that their pain is not going to limit their quality of life, it's not going to limit their function. Mm-hmm. They're going to keep living. So it's about that attitude, and I think that attitudinal change has to happen. That's where we're not as a society, because we're still in that instant gratification and probably will be for the next millennia, right? I mean, the the microwave, you know, everything happens in an (laughs) instant. Um, You know, oftentimes when people are texting back and forth now, you know, if you don't immediately text back, they just assume that you don't like them, right? <laughs> it could be that you had a bunch of things going on and you can't respond that you know that quickly. But we got the instant gratification. The same thing happens with pain. Oh, I'm in pain. I want to get rid of it. Well, maybe that pain, you know, is some is an indicator of bigger issues. Maybe that pain is not going to go away. Well, you're going to curl up and curl up in a ball and right. you know call call it a day and wave the white flag and said I'm not. You can, Mm -hmm. Um, and you can take pills that will help you crawl into the fetal position and not be human anymore. Or you can take control of that and manage that pain, whether it's acupuncture or physical therapy or yoga or deep diaphragmic breathing or mindfulness or cognitive behavioral therapy or X, Y, and Z. I mean, there's so many.
0: Yeah, or just correcting your posture.
1: (laughs) Yep. Yep. You said that, and I sat up straight, Right. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many different things, you know, um, and, you know, we're all addicted to our Fitbits now, right? Mm -hmm. And Pavlov would have a great, great fun with us right now because your Fitbit says stand up and walk and a bunch of people just stand up and walk just (laughs) randomly, you know, (laughs) Um, drink some water. And so we immediately go drink some water. So, you know, we're starting to see that. And I think employers, the bigger picture employers Understand that it's not just education about opioids because a lot of people get education on that from friends and family. You know, they sure. see stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the broader thing is educating on people on how to deal with life and how to deal mm-hmm. with difficulties, whether that's uh, a relational issue, whether that's financial issues, whether that's pain. We all are presented with challenges, and you can have fight, flight, or freeze. Mm -hmm. And what we want to try to instill is people to fight through that. Um, And so I think bigger picture employers understand that they're going to have to educate their employees on how to manage life's difficulties um, and help them, give them tools uh, to manage that. And some of that may be gym memberships. I mean, there's there's so many different ways that you can go with this. Um, but I think, you know, employers that see the bigger picture and understand by having more physically, emotionally, psychologically fit employees, not only are their workers' compensation costs going to decrease, uh, but their productivity is going to increase. Mm-hmm. So there is all sorts of financial reasons for employers to do the right thing. But it does take a little bit of step out of the uh, the comfort zone right. to some degree.
0: It, definitely the transition from employee wellness programs, which I think a lot of us can um, say there's not a lot of uh, return on investment in, in those things, especially if they're not done the right way, but the transition from that into employee total well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's a culture thing. That's an organizational culture that um, addresses financial Wellness and emotional wellness and physical wellness and it's just a, the a, the bigger picture, like you just said. Mm-hmm. So,
1: unfortunately, not everybody has that big picture view. Well, <laughs> agreed. And sometimes you have to give that. You mentioned the return on investment on wellness programs. Some of that's because the people that, that join the wellness programs are already well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So adoption rates I've seen in wellness programs are 10 to 15%. That's a 10 to 15% that are already going to the gym. They just want somebody else to pay for it.
0: That's right. They just want to be rewarded for what they're already doing.
1: Right. So that 85, 90% of the ones who are obese, that have diabetes, that have hypertension, that take medicine for hypertension, but actually if they lost weight and became more active and ate better and didn't Mm -hmm. eat red meat and didn't, drink lots of alcohol and X, Y, and Z, maybe their hypertension wouldn't be as bad.
0: Mm -hmm. You know,
1: maybe the diabetics, um, if they reduced the sugar, if they lost weight, if they, you know, it it all comes back really to self-management and self-discipline.
0: So that really leads me into a question I've been dying to ask a lot of people. Um, You know, I see a lot of uh, local governments, um, counties especially, uh, county governments are jumping on to these uh, class action lawsuit bandwagons where um, you know they want to sue the manufacturers, the distributors um, of of these opioids and i've I've really been wanting to have a discussion with someone about the fact that they're not perfect either. You know yes, I think the opioid manufacturers who truly need to be held accountable for some of the bad business practices that they've unleashed on our country. I'm not disputing that they don't need to be held accountable, but I think a lot of these local governments need to get their own houses in order uh, because the way their own health plans are probably divvying out opioids um, at a rate that would probably blow their minds uh, Mm -hmm. if they really looked into it. Um, You know, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Well, uh, oftentimes uh, when you have lawsuits, the only winners typically are the attorneys that get all the fees from it. Right. Uh, Although uh, uh, there's an attorney that helped with the big tobacco uh, uh, litigation back in the day, he is also engaged in the litigation against big pharma. Mm -hmm. Um, And So I believe there is going to be accountability. Certainly there's a lot of information coming out specifically about the Sackler family Mm -hmm. uh, and what they did know and when they knew it and their marketing plowing through, even though they knew that these were dangerous, um, through this accountability process. Um, but you're absolutely right. Uh, it's almost casting blame. It's, uh, it's kind of finding that boogeyman or finding the, the scapegoat, if you will. Um, per, uh, yes, uh, the providers and prescribers were certainly at fault because they overprescribed. Big pharma and the middlemen, uh, uh, like McKesson's and Cardinal Health, that are also um, being uh, included in those lawsuits, um, they were certainly at risk uh, and made the problems. Patients didn't ask questions. Right. Uh, payers paid without asking questions. So, in my mind, everybody is culpable. I mean, we can put the scapegoat to some degree on big pharma, and they did unleash the beast to some degree. I um, mean, I think that evidence is going to come out through this accountability from the from the lawsuit, certainly. Uh, but if everybody says it's their blame and we don't have any to blame, I think that's really short sighted. I think we all need to be introspective and try to figure out how we how we contributed to it mm-hmm. and how we can contribute to finic, finic, uh, fixing that. Sure. So ultimately, I think municipalities, uh, these cities, these counties, um, they're looking for ways to augment their budget because they're paying for the opioid epidemic yeah, their
0: their resources are being drained absolutely um, in a large degree for something that was unleashed on them but then at the same time their own employees health plan don't, don't have the kind of controls to limit you know what they what they want to see happening in other places so I think there's a um, a finger pointing in one, in one direction, but needs to be pointing in both directions. So mm-hmm. I, I agree. I think they need help learning how their own health plans um, need to be reined in and uh, change the dynamic of, um, you know, who's who's actually hurting who here.
1: Right. And, and part of the problem, obviously, if, if you've looked at the evolution of the opioid epidemic, um, prescribing started to decline in 2012. Right. Um, So the trend has been towards the illicit drugs. So, you know, CDC came out last year and said very clearly that fentanyl is the primary killer from an opioid overdose. Mm -hmm. Um, It surpassed heroin, it surpassed prescription drugs prescribed legitimately by doctors or prescription drugs used illegally on the street. Fentanyl, that's oftentimes the synthetic analogs that are manufactured in China and shipped over here, that's the primary killer at this juncture. Um, you can't do anything about that from a health plan obviously right but um, there's two different aspects to it and um, I've had two different hashtags Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think you know from a marketing standpoint I'm always trying to think about a message that will resonate and in January of 2017 I launched hashtag clean up the mess right because we've created a mess over a period of time and everybody created the mess Mm -hmm. and now we've got to help create clean up that mess and I've heard some people talk about lost generation. I mean, to some degree, they're going, you know what? They're And unfortunately, I've seen in recovery and talking with people who want to go through recovery or have successfully recovered, um, you have to hit rock bottom, and it has to be self-guided. Yeah. So in workers' compensation, we have paid for functional restoration and detox programs, which you would think would never be a part of the workers' compensation environment, but for the injury that created the need for the drugs that created a dependence that ultimately created an addiction. And then, you know, we've got to help them get off of it. Mm -hmm. Um, but a number of times workers' compensation is paid for functional restoration or detox and nothing has happened. They actually didn't get any better because that individual was not ready to affect a lifestyle change. And unfortunately they have to hit sometimes rock bottom in order to recognize that they've, got no no place else but up to go, Mm -hmm. and they're willing to change their lives. So that's kind of what we've got to do from a clean up the mess standpoint, is to try to create those epiphanies for those people, hopefully before they hit rock bottom. But we also got a hashtag prevent the mess, which is something I launched in January 2019, this Mm -hmm. year. Um, We got to keep the next batch of. We can't. Maybe we have lost a generation, unfortunately, but we can't afford to lose the next generation. So that's where preemptive, proactive approaches. So, from a pharmacy benefit manager's standpoint, they're on the front lines, right? I mean, that's who I work for now um, from a workers' compensation standpoint. So, the very first time you get an opioid, you should question it. Right. Or maybe if they've gotten a second refill of an opioid, it's like, okay, do you really need that now? Exactly. Or maybe you see the introduction of a benzodiazepine after two refills of opioids. Now right. they're maybe developing anxiety associated with the fact that their function has not increased because of the opioids, or because the, the surgery didn't go well, or whatever reason. So wouldn't that be the time to approach the psychosocial considerations and try to get to the root cause as to why the anxiety is occurring? Mm-hmm. Because as much as we have an epidemic in historically in the opioid um, overprescribing, we got a tremendous epidemic in the overprescribing of benzodiazepines. Right. The Xanaxes in the Volumes of the world. Talk about a magic pill. Mm-hmm. Those have been around forever and you get anxiety You've got panic attacks. You got whatever depression Here's a pill to take care of that and granted some people have chemistry issues and bipolar You know, there's some for some people those drugs work But the withdrawal process from benzodiazepines is worse than opioids. It takes longer to get you off of them It's mm-hmm. really nasty and you mix with alcohol You might not wake up the next morning, and you mix it with an opioid. Now you got a heroin-type euphoria from mixing those drugs together. So before you go down that path and get on an an even more addictive, more dangerous drug that requires even a, a, a has more withdrawal symptoms wouldn't you prefer to say, before we fill that prescription, let's address the psychosocial issues that may, be contum- that may be contributing toward your anxiety and depression, and let's approach them in a non-pharmaceutical approach? So I think from the hashtag prevent the mess is not creating another lost generation and really being proactive um, because you, it, it can go south very, very quickly. Um, and um, I've seen, unfortunately, a number of, of uh, claims in workers' compensation That if someone had been paying attention up front, it wouldn't have become a train wreck at the end.
0: Exactly. So
1: understanding, working with your PBM, working with your um, health insurance, creating obstacles, if you will. Uh, Not that they can't get those drugs, but creating some form of accountability. It's like, are you really sure you want to go down this path? Let's talk about this. Let's talk about alternatives. That's where the education comes into play. Mm -hmm. Before you get that first grip, let's talk about how you can manage that pain.
0: I know this is anecdotal, but I've uh, certainly had people mention that uh, even after three days of being on an opioid, uh, when they start to titrate that down, they start feeling these feelings of anxiety. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, rather than deal with those feelings, they just simply take that next um, pill that's waiting for them in their pill bottle instead of, you know, maybe using a uh, something like Dispose Rx to dispose of the rest of the medication when they realize their pain is actually gone, as opposed to just feeding um, the need to get rid of the anxiety that they're feeling. That is a, is a part of uh, reducing this medication and its effect on your whole body. You know, in Dave Chase's latest book, The Opioid Crisis Wake Up Call, he did point out that this crisis, first of all, uh, we all had a role to play in it. And so we're all going to have to come together and figure out our way out of it. Mm-hmm. But he also made the point that uh, this is not an anomaly. Um, it's really just part of the overall dysfunction in our healthcare system. And so, talking about hashtags, the, just the hashtag for this podcast itself, <laughs> the hashtag <laughs> Let's Fix Healthcare. Yep. So I think that is a a good place to um, wrap up our discussion. Before we do that, tell us a little bit more about your travels and your blog and this new endeavor that the Self-Insurance Institute of America is doing and where people can find you um, online or in your travels.
1: Well, uh, I spend more time on the road than I do at home, um, and uh, you know, I, people ask me where I live, and I say I live in Atlanta on the weekends. Right. Um, so, uh, Delta and Hilton and uh, Uber and National Rent a Car—shout out to you guys because y'all are my BFFs on the road. Right. Uh, but uh, you know, a lot of that is speaking at conferences. A lot of it is regulatory. So, I've been very engaged uh, with Work Comp regulators around the country. Um, and even uh, uh, been lobbying for uh, um, legislation in a variety of different jurisdictions. So I've gotten to know people who are policymakers, um, and been an, an advisor to about 20 different states on different things like that, so that keeps me busy as well. Um, I've been blogging since 2015. I think I got 240 blogs or so that I've uh, posted already, and they're all over the board. Uh, I post constantly on LinkedIn, so that's my platform. Uh, primarily to get the word out, Um, usually daily. And and you stalk me on LinkedIn. I see you like and comment and and share a lot of stuff. But, uh, you know, two or three articles typically a day that I I add my two cents worth in Mm -hmm. on top of that. Um, I'm very active on Twitter at RxProfessor. Oftentimes it's consistent content uh, between what I'm doing on LinkedIn. But there's also other things that I do on Twitter as well that's somewhat unique to that. Um, and then the SIA uh, Canoe uh, platform, which is a video platform that they've put together. Uh, the deadline for free access to that platform expired on February 28th. Uh, but if you're a SIA member or want to be a SIA member, they have uh, I think they've got about 70 total videos on there, uh, a variety of different resources. I obviously approach the issue of uh, chronic pain and appropriate treatment. Uh, and wellness actually mm-hmm. um, was a big component of that. So I was very happy to, uh, to be included in that. Uh, and then I'm also be launching my YouTube channel uh, in the next couple of weeks uh, by mid March. And I'm really excited about that. I've got some live events that I've recorded, I've got some long form where I can dive into detail. And then I got what I call Minute with Mark, uh, which are going to be literally a minute or two uh, that I'm going to have once or twice a week of just really just off the wall content. Um, still related to the the intersection of chronic pain and appropriate treatment, but, um, you know, really kind of quick hitters. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to get the message out. Um, you know, I've, I've got a lot of followers on all those different platforms. Uh, I've got a lot of followers that don't have anything to do with workers' compensation because what I'm talking about and the solutions I'm talking about really have universal application. And so uh, it's gratifying to me. I'll get people that will, you know, post comments or Uh, Send me an email or something and go, you know, I really appreciate you putting this out there. That's spot on. Uh, I've even had some people, uh, you know, use my content to help them educate their family members, um, people that they love, friends, uh, co-workers on on issues. Um, You know, it's just I'm the son of a preacher. (laughs) And so um, it comes through, obviously, oftentimes in the way that I present my material. But I've wanted to be an agent of change. Um, for a long time. I, I'm a purpose, I guess I'm a millennial at heart, even though I'm an old fart. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm a, I, I want to be purpose-driven, and um, the purpose for me is to try to help people address their lives and address the pain better, and it's so gratifying to me when I have people come up to me and say that I've been a, a part of that education process for them. So, I'm just, uh, I've made a lot of progress since 2012, since my first presentation, uh, but I've got a long way to go. As long as my brain and my fingers work, I hope I got a, at least another decade or so okay. to continue pushing the message out there. And I appreciate you inviting me on this podcast, it's another opportunity to get the message out there.
0: Well, I am just, I feel beyond fortunate to have stumbled on you in uh, on LinkedIn last, um, you know, maybe it was fall of 2018. Um, 2017 yeah. that's right and then the forum that we helped put together in my hometown mm-hmm. um, January of 2018 so uh, fast forward to here uh, we're, we're both doing good work and I'm just so glad to be connected to you
1: same here thanks again you're, you're doing a great job Christy. <laughs> I
0: appreciate it thank you for joining our important discussion as we attempt to hashtag Let's Fix Healthcare. Please subscribe to our podcast and let us know what you think. For more information on the work we do at Custom Benefit Solutions, visit our website at www.custombenefits.org.